ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Okay, your top 100 films ever made. Go. Look, the original Wings of Desire would be on my list. Citizen Kane, created by Orson Welles, would be there for many film buffs. Did you know, though, that Orson's movie almost didn't make it to the big screen? Hey, Natasha Mitchell with a big ideas treat today for fans of Hollywood classics. The American screenwriter, director, producer and actor, he did it all, Orson Welles, was a radical innovator. His stories, his aesthetic, his use of light, music and so much more is still shaping what we see on the screen to this day. He was a child prodigy whose parents separated when he was just four. His mother died when he was nine. His father, when he was 15, at 23, came his famous Halloween, the War of the Worlds radio broadcast. And by 25, he had made Citizen Kane. From the Free Library of Philadelphia, Michael Phillips, the film critic for the Chicago Tribune, is taking you into the orbit of Orson today, starting with the struggle to see the Oscar-winning Citizen Kane made. The film charts the story of the rise and fall of a publishing magnate. Well, in real life, studio executives, spies on the set, yes, spies, seemed hell-bent on sabotaging the young Orson. America, I think, has always loved a success story. Citizen Kane was, in the words of Orson Welles, who co-wrote it, directed it, starred in it, and was almost immediately maligned and revered for it. Orson Welles called it a failure story. Citizen Kane is told from multiple perspectives, giving us tantalizing, sometimes contradictory assessments of a fictional public figure who, Welles wrote, quote, retreats from a democracy which his money fails to buy and his power fails to control. Orson Welles... I contend, made the greatest directorial debut in world cinema, 82 years after its release. I think it's still true. Roger Ebert, my late friend from Chicago, said something I love to share with folks who may not have heard it yet. With truly great films, it is not what the film is about, it's how it's about it. A great film is more than just how the storyline reads in a synopsis. Kane largely clearly, but not entirely based on the media giant, political operator, and Hollywood power broker William Randolph Hearst. He dies, Kane that is, in his sumptuous, eerily lonely estate, Xanadu. His last word, rosebud. Incredible tight close-up. Unforgettable. We never learn in the film, interestingly I think, who actually overhears Kane utter that before dying. He seems to be alone in that room. Interesting little riddle there. Continuity error? Possibly. (laughs) But I love it. I I love the question. What does Rosebud mean? This is what a team of reporters working for the News on the March newsreel team want to tell when they tell the story of Cain. You know, they want to find out what was behind that word. So that's the premise. It is a mystery. It's set up like a mystery. What is the meaning of this word? And one reporter, whose face we never actually clearly see in the film, goes hunting for answers, interviewing all these different corners of Kane's life, all these people from his past. So it's a mystery. It's a newspaper comedy, too, sort of. It's a thundering melodrama at times. 
It's mocking, sarcastic, the work of complete and total Weisenheimers out to make a mark and needle its presumptive subject, Hearst. It's that too, I think. Everything I think Citizen Kane was and is, especially in its scenes of young Kane galloping through history, antic, kinetic, propulsive, that is that film. And that's the how it's about its subject. It is not a solemn pretend biopic. It is the opposite. Citizen Kane, released barely in 1941, is also bitterly nostalgic, melancholic, I think maybe even tragic. But it is not, I contend, a tearjerker or a heartwarmer. It is, Wells himself said, an icy experience. And it surely was the most brazen affront to a living legend, whatever came out any living legend that ever came out of the golden age of Hollywood. Now, Wells, I think, was not really of that age. His Hollywood adjacency, let's call it, was such that his ridiculous rise, this unbelievably sweetheart deal, you know, was, was met almost instantly by a tsunami of ill will, and all of Hollywood, with a few exceptions, was essentially rooting for his soggy fall from grace just, you know, just so the, this punk kid from the East Coast Theater could get his comeuppance. What happened? What happened to Citizen Kane? How did Citizen Kane come so close to being destroyed forever after it was completed? At a party in Chicago, Wells meets Thornton Wilder, author of Our Town, among others, who later in New York introduces Wells to the critic and columnist Alexander Woolcott of the Algonquin Roundtable crowd. Wolcott arranges a meeting with the actress Catherine Cornell. Wells gets hired for her company and plays Tybalt in Romeo and Juliet on Broadway with that voice of his, that beautiful, sonorous baritone. Wells was made for radio. Not yet 20 years old, he soon became one of the medium's busiest and highest paid actors. He was the voice of the shadow, among others. He was learning all the time what could be done with sound to entice the listener and make them believe in the make-believe. And here we start putting the Kane story, the Citizen Kane story together. Another development, perhaps the key one in Wells' theatrical career, came around this same time. Wells meets John Hausman. Do you remember John Hausman as an actor? In 1937, Wells and Hausman started the Mercury Theater. Halloween night, 1938, Wells and his less heralded Mercury Theater of the Air cohorts mounted a fiendishly effective version of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, written and produced for CBS Radio. Now, estimates vary, but some say approximately 6 million people heard that broadcast. You know, solid numbers, not amazing, but solid. The estimates have it that roughly a million of those 6 million were completely hoodwinked by it. They thought they were suffering a Martian invasion and it was time to leave. And it was the kind of showmanship and the kind of unbelievable hoopla and controversy and news reports and panic, you know, a million, I mean, think of it, a million people all over the country flipping out, let's say. <laughs> well, what was it? A prank? A magic act in sound? A stroke of documentary-style genius? It was all that, but whatever it was, Hollywood could not ignore that kind of noise. They couldn't. Now, in 1939, 
RKO Pictures made, well, the deal of deals and arrived in the nick of time for the Mercury Theater. They had had a couple of flops by then and money was very tight. And then RKO had George Schaefer offered Wells this unprecedented two-picture deal to produce, direct, and write and star in two feature films with no strings, essentially. I mean, he, they needed budget approval over 500000 but under 500000 you make any movie you want. They just have to sign off on the basic idea and you can go to town. Wells took a very long time to figure out what to do with that sweetheart deal, though. He wanted to do, first, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, and he, in fact, wrote a full screenplay built around the idea of the camera being the character of Marlowe, thereby putting the audience in this first-person visual position, always. He did a lot of pre-production on Heart of Darkness, and Wells was to play both Marlowe, the point-of-view emissary, and Kurtz, the Lord of the Congo, but it was too expensive, so RKO passed on that one. Wells then suggested a modern political thriller with an anti-fascist theme, Smiler with a Knife. Again, no. And then Wells met his filmmaking destiny, Herman J. Mankiewicz, wise-cracking former newspaper man who'd gone Hollywood and become one of the most versatile and entertaining writers around, also the most unreliable and also one of the drunkest. He was a chronic alcoholic. Six months into Wells's lavish RKO contract, Wells had not found his movie yet, and the wolves were howling for his failure. Much of the Hollywood press and most of the film industry were drooling over the prospect of this boy genius's downfall, and he hadn't even really gotten up yet. He and Mankiewicz wanted a really big, juicy subject to tackle. Dillinger, maybe? They thought maybe, well, what about a John Dillinger character? Maybe, if not Dillinger, a Dillinger type. Or what about Howard Hughes or a Howard Hughes type, who was then a movie maker and, of course, an aviator? Maybe more of a conventional biopic of Alexandre Dumas, the writer, the author of Count of Monte Cristo, Three Musketeers. And they thought about, you know, RKO's suggestion of well, what about the hit Broadway comedy, The Man Who Came to Dinner by George Kaufman and Moss Hart? Maybe we'll have uh, Wells play the lead in that. And they passed on that. And then Mank, as he's known, Mankiewicz, suggested William Randolph Hearst, whom everybody knew, a lot of people feared, and he was a man who made his name on so-called yellow journalism, occasionally factual, plenty combative, heavily self-interested journalism. Hearst was also a not-so-secret force in Hollywood with his own production unit at MGM. And largely, he was interested in the career of his longtime mistress, Marion Davies, a great silent star floundering a little in the sound era. Now, she and Mankiewicz were comrades in alcohol. More than once, Mank joined the Hollywood elite for weekends at Hearst's comically expansive estate about four hours' drive from Hollywood, San Simeon. It sits on a plot of land that is half the size of Rhode Island, and it has 61 bathrooms. Maybe there's something in this disguised, fictionalized portrait we could do of Hearst, a titanic public figure who turns progressively less progressive and more reactionary and isolated across a lifetime of privilege and ambition. Maybe Hearst, along with various other real-life figures Wells knew of his Chicago years, maybe Hearst and these other titans of industry, all not unfamiliar with scandal, could be big enough for Wells' first feature. So, 
Here we go. Wells turned it over to Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz's first draft was a huge, ungainly thing titled simply American. The basics were there and then some. This was going to be a kaleidoscope, an ever-shifting character study told from the viewpoints and his memories recalled by key figures in Charles Foster Kane's life after his funeral. One perspective comes from his ex-wife, Susan Alexander, the failed opera star who never wanted to be an opera star. That was Kane's idea. Another from his business manager, Mr. Bernstein. Another from Kane's best friend, Mr. Leland, the drama critic and the story's conscience. Another from the shadowy butler tipping around the corners of Xanadu, the movie's Florida set answer to San Simeon. So Mankiewicz writes this wildly flamboyant, globetrotting first draft, and it made for an auspicious and essentially unfilmable movie. <laughs> it was only four hours or so. The revisions began, and this was not un uncommon. You turn in a monster draft and you cut it down, cut it down, right? The revisions began, and they were overseen, edited, and soon enough contributed to by Wells and John Hausman. Thanks to the late Robert Carringer, high, in my view, among Wells scholars. We have a really good idea right now, thanks to his work, about who actually wrote what in Citizen Kane. This is a huge debate because there was a lot of credit battling. Wells freely took too much claim, in fact, all the claim in some interviews for writing it. Mankiewicz then countered at the time with saying, no, actually, uh, I wrote the whole damn thing. And so it was, it was kind of a, you know, a he said, he said for a long time. But, but the research and the scholarship of this really good Wells scholar, Robert Carringer, has kind of gotten us closer to the truth. The credits we see on the screen from the available script evidence and all the different drafts that exist is basically the truth. Screenplay by Herman J. Mankiewicz and Orson Welles in that order. And actually, after all that, you know, all that sort of struggle, it was true. <laughs> it's basically true what you see on the screen. So RKO's legal department freaks out when they find out just how closely, in some particulars, Kane resembles the powerful and very potentially litigious William Randolph Hearst. Early drafts of the script, eventually retitled Citizen Kane, are bursting with ideas and incidents. Political assassination in an early draft. Kane's son, who's barely in the final shooting script, was conceived initially by Mankiewicz as a boy who turns into a young white nationalist, proto-fascist troublemaker. He's killed in an attack on the Washington, D.C. armory. Talk about shades of Trump and a harbinger of the future. History always seems to be tumbling ahead of us, looking backward for ideas. In the movie, Susan Alexander, interviewed by the newsreel reporter about her memories of Kane, mentions that he should talk to the butler down at Xanadu. He knows where the bodies are buried, she says. Now, in Mankiewicz's earlier versions, the butler really did know where the body was buried because Kane had his wife's lover, the Xanadu stable boy, killed, thus turning the fictionalized version of Hearst into a murderer with clean hands but a dirtier soul. So partly for legal reasons, partly to get this thing down to two hours, the revisions continued with Wells editing like a master. He was very good under pressure. Everything he ever did, he loved having his back up against the wall and, and rewrites just with no questions. I mean, he was a genius under pressure. And it was self-made pressure. It was the kind of thing where, you know, we've all worked with people who basically uh, complain about having to clean up messes, but of course they basically cause the mess, so that swells. He's rewriting brilliantly uh, and, and making all these exchanges, long, discursive, kind of chunky monologues that Mankiewicz loved to write. 
uh, into much tighter, more effective, more speakable and actable encounters. And many interesting, completely original contributions from Wells that just whizzed through and covered decades at a time in just a few brilliant strokes. For those who know the film really well, you may remember there's a famous scene at the breakfast table featuring Wells and Ruth Warwick as the first Mrs. Kane, Emily Norton, the president's niece, and their marriage is conveyed by Wells' revisions in just a few very tart exchanges. Each conversation over coffee at the breakfast table, amorous at first, it's a great scene, the first one, chilly as a Chicago December day as it goes on, takes place at a table that gets a little longer and a little longer and a little longer, just as the marriage is getting a little worse and worse and more distant. And it's just, that's something to teach people always. You can, you can show that scene to any screenwriting class, any directing class, any acting class, and it's just, it's the best, still. Wells brought out his Mercury Theater players from New York once the script was about ready. Filming began in 1940, conducted without any interference or even set visits from the RKO brass. This is great. If studio, if studio executives had the nerve to maybe check in on them, at least find out were they making a movie in there, Wells would actually call for a break and the entire production crew would just start playing baseball on the soundstage. I mean, for 20 minutes. And then the RKO executives would just slink away. You know, and then they were, okay, let's start. Now we'll, now we'll start making the movie again. He really pushed his luck and he got away with it always, almost always. Hollywood's premier cinematographer, Greg Toland, wanted to work with Wells because Wells had never made a movie and he had a thousand ideas for crazy things to try with the camera, with lighting. They built and filmed opaque ceilings that looked real but had all the lights behind them and nobody had ever seen that many ceilings, in an, certainly in a Hollywood film, ever. And it gave the movie an instantly different look and it didn't quite occur to the average moviegoer eye, why, why does this look so different? Always, every shot. That was one reason among a hundred. Fully half of Citizen Kane's individual shots contain some sort of optical effect or miniature or bit of animation, all tricks of the eye and for the eye, and all the better to tell its story in a way that nobody else had ever done it before or, or would even think about doing. The film's development of deep focus photography, where everything, foreground and background, remains in sharp focus. This wasn't actually new, but Toland and Wells brought it to a new realm of expressive impact. Stage trained and emboldened by what worked for him in the theater, Wells turned out to be a master of staging and blocking actors for the camera, whether moving or stationary. And his images in Kane give the audience more to see in a given shot, any given shot, than they had ever been shown before. I don't know how to run a newspaper, Mr. Thatcher Kane says in the movie to his disapproving guardian. I just try everything I can think of. And that pretty much sums it up for how Wells approached movie making and Citizen Kane. Thank God. Wells even had the final say over one of the most singular and certainly eccentric movie trailer, coming attraction trailers I've ever seen. And this was the coming attractions trailer for Citizen Kane. Wherever that trailer played in theaters, those same theaters refused to play the movie when it finally did get released in 1941. The completed Kane sat on the runway a long time. In early 41, frustrated by the release delay and nervous, probably, about the film's inevitable controversy. Wells and RKO head George Schaefer started screening it privately for all kinds of influential people. 
Hollywood gossip columnist Hedda Hopper, sworn enemy of the Hearst columnist Luella Parsons, got an early look at it. She was, she said, quote, appalled. This film was too well done. It's an impudent, murderous trick, even for the boy genius, to perpetuate on the newspaper giant Hearst. Parsons, the Hearst columnist, was enraged she didn't get to see it and rat it out first. And here's where the political maneuvering really got going. Parsons contacts John D. Rockefeller, a key RKO stockholder, suggesting, demanding really, that the planned New York premiere of Citizen Kane at Radio City Music Hall be canceled, and it was. Hearst forbids any mention of Kane in any of his newspapers, and eventually he refuses to accept any advertising, not just for Kane, but for any RKO picture. And that hit RKO right where they live. MGM's head, Louis B. Mayer, offered RKO nearly a million dollars, roughly the entire Kane production budget, to buy the negative of Kane and all the prints and burn them. And Schaefer refused at first without even mentioning the offer to RKO's board of directors because he was afraid of what they would vote. But Kane editor Robert Wise, who later directed West Side Story, Sound of Music, he recalls attending a crucial board meeting in New York that ultimately determined the fate of this movie. At that meeting, Wells pulls out all the stops. He talks about censorship, freedom of expression, the Bill of Rights, and it worked. RKO did not blink. Editor Wise says that it may have been the greatest performance Orson Welles ever gave, and the public never saw it. Hearst was not done yet, though. He threatened to smear all the studios with anti-Semitic charges of letting the Jews run things, quote, and suspicious sympathies toward all these European refugees that have been coming over, fleeing Hitler, taking jobs away from, quote, real Americans. Columns saying just those sorts of things ran routinely in Hollywood trade papers at the time. RKO had booked Kane for, among others, a traditional release in Fox's West Coast theater chain, about 500 theaters, but they gave in to Hearst pressure. They booked it, and they never showed it. To recycle the old joke, Kane wasn't really released. It just escaped here and there. But it couldn't really get far with the public that way, obviously. And honestly, probably, Kane never was destined, I think, for huge popular success. Wells himself acknowledges the curious iciness at the film's core, that's his phrase. It's a film, he said, written by one man who despised him, the central character that is, Herman J. Mankiewicz, that's the one man, and it was written also by another man, Wells, who sort of loved him, <laughs> or at least sympathized with Kane and maybe understood a lot of him. Hearst never got over the movie's shrill, unhappy portrait of Marion Davies, a.k.a. Susan Alexander Kane, seen in Kane as a no-talent drunk, which Marion Davies was not. Drunk, maybe. No talent, no. Hearst couldn't talk about that part out loud. He was, after all, still married. But Hearst told columnist John Chapman that anyone who liked Citizen Kane was, quote, a treasonable communist. At the Academy Awards that year, there were boos at the mention of the film's title. This was unprecedented at the Academy Awards. This was not Hollywood's film at all. This was the work of a foreign agent. The movie won exactly one Oscar for best screenplay. And so now, today, we all live in a world where David Fincher's movie about Herman Mankiewicz on Netflix, Mank, who has seen it, 
So we live in a world where Mank won more Oscars than Citizen Kane. It's not a bad film. It just perpetuates the probable, very probable falsehood that Mankiewicz wrote virtually every word. In Chicago, we have a truly invaluable Wells scholar, the film critic and historian Jonathan Rosenbaum. Does Citizen Kane in any authentic way come from the golden age of Hollywood? This is a good question. Or was it, as Rosenbaum argues, quote, an independent feature that used Hollywood resources? Might it be, rather than a true Hollywood picture, is it more of a, what Rosenbaum calls it, the first feature of an independent avant-garde filmmaker and the only film in which he was accorded both the full range of a Hollywood studio and final cut? I think Kane is what Rosenbaum says it is, quote, an exceptional instance in a filmmaking career fundamentally at odds with the Hollywood mainstream. And yet, every time the Oscars roll out another greatest hits reel of classics, moments to remember, there he is again. You know, Orson Welles as Kane, a dying man, dropping that snow globe down the stairs. The nurse draws the sheet over his dead body. And there it is, that sled, Rosebud. In the end, what is Citizen Kane? Is it just another story about a man who had it all and then lost everything, who didn't get the love he needed? I'm hardly the first to point this out, but there is inarguably, I think, a tremendous and finally very moving amount of Wells' own life and personality, and yes, sadness in Charles Foster Kane. I think what Wells left us finally, in conclusion here, was a tri-modal masterwork. It drew imagistically from the theater. It drew sonically in its stunning array of overlapping dialogue and sound design from radio. And it survived Hearst's attempts to kill it, so it became the cinema we can study ad infinitum. Martin Scorsese once said Orson Welles was responsible, quote, for inspiring more people to be film directors than anyone else in the history of cinema. And that brings up a great distinction, I think, between two words, influential and inspirational. Jonathan Rosenbaum talks about this. Wells' brilliant debut was not really influential in some ways. It didn't lead to many or any other films like it. Although its uses of the visual vocabulary of German expressionism in turn led to the language of American film noir. This movie looks a lot like film noir of the 40s. This just happened to be made in 1940. And the visual ideas of it, other cinematographers thought, why didn't I think of that? I love those shadows. I love watching three, I love, I love it all. <laughs> and so from a technical point of view, we get an artistic point of view. Citizen Kane is a singular landmark in American modernism. And yet, to a pretty wide variety of people, it is simply just a cherished classic. Art, in the end, I think is struggle. It's warfare, really, when you think of what kind of risks you run of being snuffed out. The work can be snuffed out so quickly and decisively by your enemies. Kane won out, though. History must have had its eye out for it. MGM did not succeed in buying it and burning it. Kane is here, always ready for exploration, debate, all of it. It's an affront. I think it's a miracle, and it's a thing of bizarrely playful beauty. Michael Phillips, the film critic for the Chicago Tribune there, speaking at the Free Library of Philadelphia with an ode to Orson, Orson Welles and his film Citizen Kane, which found its audience despite its critics. 
Orson was an outsider in the studio world of Hollywood. He struggled for creative control of his projects. His films were heavily edited by studios against his will. Some remained unreleased. And yet, his legacy powers on, doesn't it? Well, here's another star film critic to explain more. Bob Mondello is a film critic for National Public Radio, our sister station, our sister network in the US. Back in 1985, as a fresh-faced new NPR employee, one of Bob's first assignments was preparing an on-air obit for Orson Welles. We now have had the advantage of many years and a whole bunch of books about him, uh, lots of scholarly work. Anyway, we know enough about him now to unpack his career a little. He was 15 when he convinced his guardian to uh, let him quit school and travel unsupervised to Ireland to pursue painting. And I could talk about that, but uh, happily, many years later, he described it himself in his 1973 film, F for Fake. It's a sort of a mockumentary that combines several of his enthusiasms. Magic, he does a lot of tricks in it. Howard Hughes, who was originally going to be what Citizen Kane was all about, explored through writer Clifford Irving, who wrote a fake biography or autobiography of him. Art, through the art forger Elmire, who painted Picasso's on camera for Wells. And his biggest enthusiasm himself, War of the Worlds brought him to Hollywood's attention at the advanced age of 23. He had by that time started the Mercury Theater with John Houseman, created a sensation with Shakespeare, with an all-black uh, voodoo Macbeth and a fascist Julius Caesar that had touches of Mussolini to it. He created another sensation with the Cradle Will Rock, which when he was kicked out of the theater and was not allowed to perform there, he marched the audience 10 blocks away to another theater that they rented, where Mark Blitzstein, the composer, was going to play the music and do all the parts on stage because the actors still weren't allowed to go on stage. And they were the actors went up with the audience and they were sitting in the audience and at one point one of them stood up and started doing her part and then the others started doing their parts, and Blitzstein found himself basically doing a production without the production, right? It was so successful, it was, it was electrifying, and it was so successful that it's basically how you do that show now. A lot of people have said that Wells learned from that, that you don't necessarily do all the big stuff that you think you need to do for a theatrical production. Sometimes it's a good idea to let the audience imagine, which of course he had already been doing on the radio. Now he did all of that while he was producing and starring in radio programs. His schedule got so busy that cabs couldn't get him from one theater to the next in time. So he discovered that you don't have to be sick to hire an ambulance got ambulances to race him to these places with sirens uh, running. I think you have to be 20 to carry that sort of thing off. (laughs) Finally, RKO hired him out in Hollywood to a three-film contract, and he headed for Hollywood to write, direct, star in, and produce movies. He spent a year futzing around with what sounds like an absolutely terrible idea for Heart of Darkness. He had the idea that the camera would be the main character. It sounds like a bad streaming notion, basically. And he gave that up and he came up with Citizen Kane, a story with obvious parallels to newspaper titan William Randolph Hearst. And so he made an enemy of the most powerful man in publishing at 26. 
He was brash and bold and so young. And for everyone else, can you imagine being a working director in Hollywood and having him come along? And your producer is saying, look what he's doing, right? I mean, he's amazing. Now, having read a bunch of Wells' books, I have noticed something. If you are writing a biography of Orson Wells, somewhere around page 350, let's say, let's say your book is 600 pages, somewhere around page 350, you are finally done with Citizen Kane. <laughs> That's his first movie. And you have 14 more completed movies, quite a few uncompleted movies, a whole second career in theater, a third career as an actor for hire, a fourth career in television, a fourth and a half career in magic, a marriage to Rita Hayworth, for heaven's sakes, plus all those ads for bad California wines. And all of that gets less than half of the book, which is not to say that a lot of what he did wasn't worthy. It was just seriously compromised, like his marriage. The Magnificent Ambersons, which was butchered by the studio, and given a happy ending, and its original negatives were destroyed. It's all true. His Latin American documentary that was made at the request of the US government and then canceled by his studio. The Stranger in 1945, his only major box office success. He did it to prove he could come in on time and under budget, and he did, but he'd agreed to a terrible contract that let the studio make cuts to the script both in advance and then to the final film. To circumvent that, he shot as much as, of it as he could in long, continuous takes with nothing for them to cut back to. And he also put a film within a film, uh, which was already becoming a sort of a Wells trademark, and it used the, um, the very first Holocaust footage in any Hollywood feature. So you can call that one a success on points, kind of, uh, and on the studio's terms. Then he made Lady from Shanghai, another film noir. It was butchered by the studio. They demanded reshoots, so his no close-ups, no edits trick didn't work a second time. Um, the studio's changes cut a full hour from what he had made uh, and put the film over budget. There is a Hall of Mirrors bit in it that is magnificent and three minutes. It was designed to be 20 minutes. Just imagine what we lost with that. I mean, just not having that footage. Critics at the time mostly found uh, Lady from Shanghai confusing. Posterity has been much kinder to it. After that, he made Macbeth. Macbeth was, in 1948, only the fourth time that Hollywood had made a Shakespeare film since the silent era. He added a character. He beefed up the witches. Uh, he used bits of his stage voodoo Macbeth. The studio gave him $700,000 if he agreed to pay for anything over that. So he completed it in 23 days with uh, rented costumes and on sets that were actually designed for Roy Rogers. But it's the Scottish play. It was famously cursed. And the curse on this one was he had everybody do it with Scottish burrs, right? Lots of rolling of R's and things like that, making them all but unintelligible. And worse, he recorded all the dialogue first and then had them act to the dialogue. In other words, they were essentially lip-syncing their parts, which is, of, of course, is great for acting. <laughs> he uh, makes up for Macbeth's 23-day shoot by taking three years to complete this one. <laughs> the first day of shooting, the producer went bankrupt. 
Wells put all of his, a lot of his own money into it, but kept running out of cash and stopping for months to take acting gigs in things like The Third Man to get cash to start up again. This prompted some workarounds. Rodrigo's murder takes place in a Turkish bath. Why? Because the costumes had been impounded and he couldn't get them out and towels he could get. Anyway, that worked. Uh, it has some uh, nice Wellesian trademarks, uh, odd camera angles and reorders scenes and starts with funerals of the main characters. After that, Mr. Arcaden, another noir. Wells missed an editing deadline and the producer took back the film. They took it away from him. They released five different versions of it. Uh, Wells called it his biggest disaster, but he married its leading lady. A Touch of Evil, 1958, arguably his best noir. Charlton Heston had him hired to direct, but he immediately started clashing with the producers. He went to New York to do a TV show when he was supposed to be editing. They locked him out of the edit booth and recut it more conventionally. And he then spent, I mean, this is a, this is a case of, you know what, it's so much easier to do it right the first time than it is to make up for it. He wrote a 58-page memo arguing for why his original version was better and why they should restore it. And they ultimately did. Uh, in 1998, 13 years after his death and 40 years after the movie. The trial in 1962, um, this is Kafka. Producers ran out of money, uh, so he couldn't build sets. The Garde d'Arcy in, uh, in Paris was a big hulking behemoth that was empty at the time, so he made it there. Wells thought Kafka was hilarious. Um, nobody else did, and the film flopped. But again, he met Ojak Kodar, his partner for the rest of his life, so a personal win. Chimes at Midnight, kind of brilliant, based on Wells' theater project Five Kings. Maybe the best acting he ever did, virtually unseen in this country. He was playing Falstaff in it. There's a story that Wells was left speechless a few years later when Charlton Heston, who was always a big fan of Wells, uh, asked him to play Falstaff in a movie he was making, saying that it was a part he'd always wanted to see him in. Ouch. Then F for Fake, uh, he didn't shoot most of it, he added footage to an existing documentary. It was an amusing little trifle that ended up being the last film he completed. And then Don Quixote, never finished tilting at windmills in his own lifetime, uh, spent so long shooting it that his star died and it was released <laughs> posthumously. The Other Side of the Wind spent six years on the story of an aging director who is desperately looking for funds to complete his final film. Those funds in real life came from Iranian backers. So when the Shah of Iran was deposed, the film fell into a sort of a legal limbo uh, from which it emerged in 2018, 35 years after his death. That one was also released posthumously. So as I say, compromised. Now there is some beauty there in the films he made, but it, if it never reaches an audience, it's hard to argue that it burnishes his reputation. So how do you measure the legacy of a guy who has done those things, who's captured the imagination of a generation in radio by panicking it, in theater by politicizing classics, in film by taking on a titan of publishing and making a masterpiece, all by the age of 26, but who then spent four decades squandering the opportunities, one after another, making a handful of interesting films and lots that were less interesting, acting in certifiable junk to pay for projects that he cared about and then not actually making those projects. And yet he was universally regarded as a genius, an innovator, the creator of the greatest film ever made. 
it strikes me that there are several ways to evaluate the legacy of that sort of a person. In Latin, the phrase is ars longa vita brevis. Art is lasting, life is short. So what lasts in art? Well, with theater, what lasts is mostly audience memories. So in theory, he's gone within 30 or 40 years. But also things that get mimicked, get, get copied and adapted. So Brando mumbles in a movie, and all of a sudden, acting doesn't have to be grand gestures, right? Wells does Julius Caesar in modern dress and makes it about fascism, and now classics don't have to feel classical. When I was researching this talk, I looked at a lot of reviews from back then just to look at what people were saying about his work. The ones for Julius Caesar and Voodoo Macbeth seemed odd, like they weren't sure how to talk about the productions. Now remember, this is the 1930s. Um, George and Ira Gershwin are doing musicals. All modern plays look like Ibsen, a dining room set or a, a living room set. Um, stages all had curtains. They were, there were no thrusts. There were no theaters in the round back then. And the way that critics talked about Julius Caesar, it was clearly unusual. So just on a hunch, I tried to find examples of Shakespeare done in modern dress, going back to like a century earlier, to 1830. And I found one. It was in Birmingham about 13 years beforehand, and it was a production of Coriolanus. And the critics were puzzled, and the audiences hated it. So imagine, along comes Wells in the same season that Antony and Cleopatra is being produced in togas. And Wells does Julius Caesar in modern dress after rewriting bits of it, um, arguing that Shakespeare wrote it to sound normal for Elizabethan audiences, meaning sort of London colloquial in 1600. He wanted it to sound that way for contemporary audiences, so he incorporated modern language and language from other plays, including, and I'm, I'm not saying that I have discovered the source of this, but including a lot from Coriolanus, that, it, that his script incorporated a whole bunch of that, and no togas. The idea was to be urgent and contemporary, and he does it for a reason. He does it with fascism brutalizing Europe to make a political point in a way that is clear politically, a way that the audience gets, that critics get, and it not only clicks, it becomes influential. Just a few years later, Olivier films Henry V, not just as the story of a king, but as a call to arms for World War II Britain. Now, it's not in modern dress, but it, it is clearly politicized. It's designed to talk to his day, um, a wartime English public, and he wins Oscars with it. These days on stage, it's rare to see Shakespeare done in doublets and hose. Uh, people don't do it anymore, pretty much ever. Directors discovered that if you break the mold the way that Wells did, the possibilities become endless. So that's theater. In film, what lasts is the actual film, the work itself. Theoretically forever, assuming that we can digitize it and color correct it and all those kinds of things. But the copying and adapting part also applies. Directors mimic what they like. They try out variations on what they like. And when they see new techniques, they adopt them. Let's assume that Citizen Kane is a masterpiece that rewrote Hollywood's rule books and then look at what happened right after Citizen Kane. Hollywood storytelling, previously dead linear. You tell a story and it starts at the beginning and it goes to the end and it's just straight ahead, can suddenly accommodate multiple points of view. 
and moral complexity. I mean, think uh, Kurosawa's Rashomon or Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. Stories can be structurally tricky. Wells starts Kane with Kane's death and then tells the film's whole story in that newsreel right at the very beginning. He is basically there adapting the Greek theater's chorus. But it's new to film, although it's old in world theater. And he mixes up the order of events, a device that was later used in Lawrence of Arabia uh, by David Lean and Reds by Warren Beatty and Malcolm X by Spike Lee and Social Network by David Fincher. Tragic antiheroes can now be sympathetic from The Godfather to Mad Max to The Joker. Dramatic lighting and deep focus and odd angles are all just basic you know, part of the filmmaking now. I mean, they're just what we do. Inconclusive endings are okay, which was unheard of before Kane. Now kind of standard, but not in Wells' films because the studios kept taking back his films and re-editing them to give them conclusive endings because that's what they knew how to do. And a filmmaker today can ignore studio casting, pretty much, especially independent filmmakers, and work with a repertory company of his own choosing or her own choosing. Wells also arguably helped invent the mockumentary on radio in War of the Worlds, in the fake news rule in Citizen Kane, in F for Fake. All those things make him an innovator, an experimenter, a maverick, but not one of those things would seem remarkable if you asked a college student looking at the film today. The thing about experimenting is that if it clicks and is influential, then when you look back at it later, it doesn't seem like anything much. And the example I always use to describe this is Cabaret on stage. Joel Gray played the, uh, played the MC. Uh, it had songs commenting on society rather than commenting on, on love. Uh, it had a huge mirror that was angled to reflect the audience and thereby implicating us in Nazi horrors. In an age of Hello, Dolly! and Funny Girl, that was shocking. 20 years later, Hal Prince restaged the show, and it felt incredibly old-fashioned because other shows had mimicked those things. What you saw was this lumbering thing with a clever idea in it. People had taken the idea and run. So another way to look at a legacy is who got inspired by the person. There are folks he trained. Citizens Kane was one of the first times that a youngster named uh, Robert Wise had ever worked in a, a movie. He went on to direct The Day the Earth Stood Still and West Side Story and The Sound of Music, so it was, you know, it was a good start. There are folks who followed him and have done similar things. Uh, Quentin Tarantino uh, had an equally explosive arrival, certainly, with his first movie, although he did it at the advanced age of 30. John Singleton was 24 when he got nominated for an Oscar for Boys in the Hood, and he's now become a writer-director star. Elia Kazan jumped from stage to screen in the same way that, um, that Wells did, with, first with Streetcar Named Desire, then with On the Waterfront. Bob Fosse made that jump with, uh, with Cabaret, and he'd already made it as an actor at that point. Among the other filmmakers uh, who use Wellsian devices and cite, cite him as an influence, John Huston used his camera techniques in Maltese Falcon and Asphalt Dungle. David Lean adopted his narrative approach in Lawrence of Arabia. William Friedkin, who just died recently, uh, strenuously defended Wells when Pauline Kael claimed that Wells was not the auteur of Citizen Kane. Friedkin said he'd seen Citizen Kane at least 100 times. 
and that it was a huge influence when he made The Exorcist. Like Wells, Friedkin had a really booming start with The Exorcist and uh, French Connection and a few other films, and then spent years wandering in the cinematic wilderness. Martin Scorsese developed a rep company and adopted uh, Wellsian character ideas in Raging Bull and The Irishman and most recently in Killers of the Flower Moon. It actually has a, uh, a silent film uh, newsreel at the very beginning of it. Francis Ford Coppola, his Apocalypse Now is essentially the film Wells would love to have made of Heart of Darkness. And also Stanley Kubrick and Ridley Scott and Paul Thomas Anderson and Christopher Guest and a host of others cite him as an influence and inspiration. And then there are the folks who seem to be following in his footsteps a little more closely. Kenneth Branagh is often compared to Laurence Olivier, which makes sense, they're both Brits, right? But Wells is, I think, a better fit. Branagh made Henry V at 29 and behaved in a very Wellsian way. He brought his rep company with him. He had a repertory company called the Renaissance Company, not unlike Wells's Mercury Company. I think you can say that Derek Jacobi is his Joseph Cotton, that Judi Dench is his Agnes Moorhead in almost a dozen films, so it's not like he, he abandoned them later. Branagh filmed lots of Shakespeare and always starred himself in it, just like Wells. He mixed it up with film noir. The first film he made after Henry V was Dead Again, which is a noir, and that goes all the way up to Haunting in Venice. He made self-referential movies on occasion. Uh, Belfast is his, in which he's basically telling his own story in much the same way that in parts of F for Fake, Wells was doing that. But he's a studio workhorse, right? He's not a maverick. He's been very successful in Hollywood. Joel and Ethan Cohen were 29 and 26 when they made their first film noir, uh, Blood Simple. They have definitely reinvented film style since then. Joel recently made a black and white Macbeth with Denzel Washington, where Wells's influence is, is just undeniable, from camera angles to, uh, to sets. Just so you can see, I brought a, a, the witches scene. Wells had done it with bubbling cauldrons. Cohen made it all about birds perching in branches and hence the camera angles. Another director, Wes Anderson. He has said the Royal Tenenbaums is a deliberate comic riff on the Magnificent Ambersons. Royal, Magnificent, okay? He chose the house he set it in because it was a dead ringer for the Ambersons house. He's talked about his love for Wells, especially Ambersons and the trial. His latest comedy, Asteroid City, made me think a lot about Wells. It centers on an alien invasion that is kind of a goof on War of the Worlds, right down to the film being part of an omnibus series. You know, that was on TV, but in uh, Wells' case, it was obviously on the radio. The stylizing of Anderson's film is obviously very different, but it's, it's got a theatrical quality, and he brings his own repertory company with him when he does things. Jason Schwartzman's been in most of his films. Tilda Swinton's been in a lot. At one point in Asteroid City, he has Brian Cranston narrating a TV program that is clearly modeled on The Twilight Zone. And I'm watching it. I mean, every critic talked about Rod Serling and how much Brian Cranston was doing Rod Serling, including me, I'm embarrassed to say. Um, but because Cranston is not actually Serling, I realized that I could see who Serling was doing when he was doing Twilight Zone with that deep resonant voice and the, the mannered delivery, he was pretty clearly doing Orson Welles, so I looked up Twilight Zone. And guess who was their first choice for narrator? 
but he asked for too much money. And then there is Christopher Nolan. And I could see that you were thinking of him as I was talking about these other people. Um, he's taken Wells's notion of fracturing narrative to, you know, just basically all of his films. Memento went backwards. The Dark Knight trilogy fragments not just time, but images and, and uh, frame. Tenet, who knows what that was fragmenting. I mean, it was like the, just amazing. And Oppenheimer, in many senses, is his Citizen Kane, a film centered on the life story of a complicated, troubling, and troubled antihero who can almost literally destroy the world and for whom we're supposed to feel deeply. The dialogue has a 1940s-ish, noir-ish snap. Um, there's a framing device of a federal hearings the, to prevent multiple points of view, and there's an unreliable narrator in Mr. Downey. The story jumps around in time. The filming shifts from color to black and white. Nolan is very proud of inventing new camera tricks. Uh, in this case, he's doing it with an IMAX camera with effects done almost entirely in camera, including a nuclear explosion. He is forever composing visuals with lighting, and oh my God, the lighting in this movie is amazing. And his ending manages to be at once inconclusive and historical. When I wrote that obit in 1985, Orson Welles seemed almost entirely absent from the big screen. Commercial Hollywood had gone in other directions, Star Wars, Jaws, that kind of thing, and it left him behind. And now as I'm speaking tonight, almost four decades later, I see Orson Welles everywhere I look. In the radio world that I inhabit in my job, in the theater world I love, and in cinema, where his contributions are momentous, central, and utterly essential. And all I can think is, all's well that ends Wells. <laughs> Thank you. Film critics Bob Mundello and Michael Phillips, our thanks to the Free Library of Philadelphia for these recordings. And if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, your local library will have a copy or you can find it online. With a bravo to the classics today, I'm Natasha Mitchell. I'll catch you next time. Don't forget, big ideas can be found and followed on the ABC Listen app. Please, please do that for us so more people can find us. I'll catch you next time. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.